Three, two, one. You know what? This song, it's like you can dance to it as Ollie hangs. Wait, no, hold on, hold on. <laughs> you ready? Okay. okay here we go. You ready? Sorry, I had to. I, let's let's clean this up. But in three, two, one. I'm not very good at, at not doing just a straight guy. I should I should just be gasping and going, Bubba, oh Bubba, Bubba, what, Bubba, Bubba, oh Bubba. Are you? That's what are I you gasping? Doing, but... Press practicing for our sex position scene, Matt. What's going on? There? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um... This podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, and more. Please leave a written review on whatever app you get this podcast from. Spoiler alert, when this podcast talks about the television series Game of Thrones, it talks in the context of the most recently aired episode. And when it talks about George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series, it talks in the context of the most recently released book. You've been warned. Dedicated to HBO's Game of Thrones and George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series, you're listening to Game of Thrones, Matt's audio blog. And now, here's your host, Matt Murdock. Welcome back to Game of Thrones. It is Season 6, Episode 3, Oathbreaker. This is Matt's audio blog. We're covering the episode written by the showrunners Benny and Weiss and directed by Daniel Sackheim, or however you say his name. I'm not very good at pronouncing names. This time around, I know you've had Kelly and Holly for the first two episodes. This time around, we're switching it up. We have the siren of A Song of Ice and Fire from the North. Her name is Stephanie. She is at SM Persephone on the Twitter. Stephanie, welcome. How are you doing? I am good. I am ready to talk about Oathbreaker. Oathbreaker is the name of the episode. And who better to be an authority about oathbreaking than none other than the king of podcasting, Double P Media's own, Bubba. How are you, sir? I said I'd be here at 9.30. We're currently recording at 10. I broke my oath. I fulfilled my responsibility to this podcast. Bye, guys. Oh, no, Matt, I guess I'll stay. I guess I'll stay the whole time, Matt. That's right. It's me, Bubba. You can find me on Twitter at Fit and Trim. That's F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M, at Fit and Trim on Twitter. Follow me, peeps. I need more followers. He always needs more followers. So does his podcast network, which is Double P Media. That's at the word double, the letter P, H, Q. And uh, follow them on Twitter as well. Folks, we always start out on Thursdays doing the music of the episode. And this time will be no different. But first, I want to tell you Matt's audio blog dot com is your one stop shop for this podcast. That's M A T T S audio blog. Dot com. I've learned how to spell thanks to Bubba's doubles and all of that stuff that he taught me many, many years ago back when we were doing podcast Winterfells together. Uh, Bubba, thank you for that. Also, Matt's audio blog at gmail.com is how you contact the podcast. If you have any feedback regarding season six, get it in March, by March 5th, 2019 in order to be part of the next feedback podcast. That is your solid deadline to get anything into me. Because that's a quick turnaround between the Monday and the Thursday episode where I have to sort through all of your stuff. And I'm sure there'll be lots of great thoughts 
we're all on the same even keel now, book readers and show show people only alike. Uh, and I really uh, enjoy exploring these without having too much in the way of hints from the books. There are still a few things that you can get one way or the other, but not too much. And I have really enjoyed that portion of it. In the meantime, I was teasing the music. Let me just go ahead and finish that tease by telling you we've got a brand new theme for John. And I want to tell you a little bit about it with a complete breakdown and also how it leads into a theme for John and Danny that we know for Season 7. The music on Game of Thrones. A fail. Good. Now go fail again. So, that from the scene where Jon Snow first emerges for everybody to see that he is alive again. And it introduces a new theme for Jon, separate from the Stark theme. Separate even from that kind of Game of Thrones theme intro that starts when he's first up on the porch. It's when he starts to descend on the stairs that you get that new theme for Jon. And... One of the things that I found that Ramin did really well was he, with the that kind of Game of Thrones-ish kind of intro, a little bit different than what the normal intro would be because it's major, a little happier, appropriately, um, but also bittersweet. It does have some minor elements to it as well, uh, and I found that that was very interesting. It also points to one of the theme origins of this particular Jon Snow theme. What I found in looking at this theme pretty closely is that it actually borrows a lot of ideas from both the Game of Thrones theme, which he is, of course, a legitimate Game of Thrones person, even though we don't know that at the time. Ramin did know that by the end of this season, he was Lyanna Stark's son and not Ned's which changes the perspective on John quite a bit because you have to suspect, well, that means he's either Robert's son or he's Rhaegar's son, right? And either way, there's a royal bloodline there. And that makes John not only for the rest of this season because he is playing the Game of Thrones on his own, trying to retake Winterfell, eventually becoming King of the North. The Game of Thrones is being thrust upon him. So Ramin took a little bit of the rhythm from the Game of Thrones theme and modified it. He took this motive like this 
And then he took that rhythm, applying it to his new melody, like this. And ultimately, he altered the rhythm just a little bit, just to make it different. And what you get is the theme that we heard, this. Now, I do want to point out that this particular John theme borrows things from a couple of different themes. The Game of Thrones theme, like I just demonstrated there, and the Stark theme. And while the Stark theme has a similar shape in some ways, John's varies a little bit, but they all are centered around the fifth step of the scale. It's not important for you to know that. I'm just saying that shape is also one of the ways that Ramin borrows from the Starks. But primarily, one of the things that he borrows from the Stark theme is the way that harmony is used. Those last two little bits of that John theme, the two chords kind of holding out, that's borrowed directly from a version of the Stark theme that we've been hearing for a couple of seasons now, where it goes from the minor three down to the flat two in terms of a progression. And again, these are numbers that you don't need to know. But if you listen to those last two parts and then think about some of the ways that we've heard the Stark theme being played for Sansa, then you hear some similarities in the very end of the harmony. Let me play the Stark theme as it sometimes appears under Sansa. Not only that, but as Ramin develops this theme throughout the course of this season, he also borrows yet another harmony from the Stark melody. If you recall, way back in season two, when Rob was still king in the north, well, the Stark theme did this curious thing where sometimes the harmony would make it sounded a little more triumphant, a little more processional, like this. And if you really want to get into the math of it all, which I don't imagine most of you do, you're like, Matt, just tell us what we're supposed to hear. I, I'm nerdy this way. What happens is, is both the Stark theme and John's theme are minor. They're sad in a lot of ways. That's what minor chords tend to do to us. They either make us feel sad or maybe scared. And in order to make that same Stark theme feel a little happier, like the time when Rob was winning all of the battles, he shifted the harmony to where the home key became more of the relative major key rather than the minor key it was set in. It is all about the harmony that Ramin borrows from. And what we end up getting is the same thing being done exactly in the same way for John when he makes his heroic stand against the charging cavalry of Ramsey Bolton's army. He just draws the sword and he's facing them down seemingly all by himself. 
It's one of the greatest hero moments on television, in my opinion. And it's one of the most heroic versions of John's theme that you'll ever hear. Let's listen to that. Now. Cavalry! That same starting out in minor and then this harmony climbs up to find a major key for the rest of the melody to fit in. That's the kind of trick that Ramin was using for Rob way back in season two when things about Rob were happier. Here, you would think, well, why is he making it happier? Well, it's not so much about that. It's more about the fact that John is being a hero. Someone we can endorse. Someone who isn't going to give up, even in the face of all all those incredible odds. Something that makes us hopeful, perhaps. And sometimes major chords can be interpreted as sad, too. The first time I saw this episode, I thought, wow, they're going to kill Jon Snow. Again. But that isn't what happened. And thank goodness it didn't, because then Ramin wouldn't have had this lovely love theme for John and Daenerys in season seven. Now, the theme for John and Daenerys is also copied after this one. You need to integrate a little bit of John and a little bit of Danny, and you need to make sure that everybody who is on the same page realizes this is actually a really sad thing. That is happening here. You got a nephew and an aunt who don't know they're a nephew and an aunt falling in love with each other, and they will quickly have to, in order to be accepted by most of Westeros, fall out of love by choice. And that sucks. Uh, as Jamie has constantly pursued Cersei because you can't change who you love, right? Um, so here you have John and Daenerys in the exact same situation, although not yet. Uh, at this time, when we hear this particular theme, it's the reveal of why John and Daenerys can't be together. But first, I want to look at how John's theme here that we've been covering parlays into the John and Danny theme. And the way that it does so is this. It's not so much in the rhythm or even the shape. It's in the intervals, the distance in between notes. In John's theme... He goes down to the root from the fifth. Again, these are numbers that you don't need to know, but you'll hear that the note from the first note to the second note, it goes down and it goes down from, let's say in the key of D, it goes down from an A to a D 
and then back up to an A and does a little squiggly thing at the end, like this. But what you have with the John and Danny theme is the fact that from the John theme, he decided to go the other direction. He went to the same note name. He goes from an A to a D, but instead of going down to the D, he goes up to the D, like this. And it has this long, drawn-out, climbing kind of thing, just as John's theme has the follow-up to this, his motive, this kind of long, drawn-out notes kind of thing. And both themes end up conveying a sense of bittersweetness, a sense of, gosh, John, we're happy you're alive, but we're sorry you had to go through this. And for John and Daenerys, gosh, guys, we're happy that you guys are happy for once, but... We're sorry that you're about to have to go through what you're about to have to go through. And that's what this scene with Bran and Sam, Bran, I guess, seeing, witnessing the marriage of Rhaegar and Lyanna. And then it goes straight to John and Danny finding each other in the boat. Ooh. He loved her. It's really a lovely piece of music, but I'll cover that more when we get into Season 7 or maybe even Season 8. We'll see how prevalent it is there once the music comes in for Season 8 as well. And uh, we'll continue to give you musical analysis as we go through each new episode every week for the last six episodes of the show. In the meantime, I'm going to leave you with the music that ended this particular episode from the time that John gave his cloak to Ed all the way through the end credits. It is all John's theme in all its glory, and it's really kind of sad. It's very bittersweet, much like my telling in this particular episode, as you'll soon see. Back with Bubba and Stephanie in just a moment. You should. What do you want me to do with this? Wear it. Burn it. Whatever you want. You have Castle Black. My watch is ended. 
man, Matt, listening to this music, it makes me want to dance. I mean, look at Ollie. He's swinging. Ooh, yes. There it is, folks. And with that final musical commentary, it's time to move on to the story because, I mean, nobody can say it better than Bubba in that particular instance. As you folks know, I like to break things down in my little OCD way. Uh, which people make fun of all the time. But I talk about on the surface first, which is an emotional side or thematic side or whatever you want to make it. And then we talk about three big things in the episode that we feel were big points in the episode or whatever you want to make it. And then we talk about uh, questions that we have for the episode and usually whatever you want to make of the answers to that. And finally, we get to the tidbits, which are the smaller points of the episode or whatever you want to make it. So... Uh, as you can see, my OCD is well out of control at this point. I, I've, I'll, including everything into everything just in order to be able to categorize it. We're going to begin with On the Surface. On the Surface. And, uh, boy, there's, I just got a mountain of stuff to say about the emotion of all of this, but I'm going to let one of you guys start. Stephanie, why don't you start us off with something that you have for On the Surface? Okay. Well, I always like to talk about our episode titles and how they relate to the episode. So this this week we have Oathbreaker. Now, in my head, I was sitting there saying Oathbreaker. Is that somebody's sword name? Is that, no, that's Oathkeeper. Uh, there's Widow's Whale. So then I had to think about all the people who might have broken an oath or, you know, I kind of, I came up with a few, but some of them are a little bit, they're, they're reaching a bit. Um, the biggest one I came up with first is obviously the Night's Watch. I know it wasn't this episode, but they killed John, their Lord Commander. I feel like that's breaking some kind of oath. <laughs> Must be. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, John, technically, he's really not breaking his oath because he did die and come back to life. He left. My watch has ended. Uh-huh. You know, we have the Tower of Joy scene, um, and there's Kingsguard, but their king is dead. Are they breaking an oath? That could be a whole other episode to discuss, but who knows? <laughs> mm-hmm. Like it. Small John Umber, he betrays uh, the Starks for the Boltons, which is kind of nonsense and still a little confusing to me. That's, that's an oath, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. And then this one's the, the stretch. Uh, Danny didn't go to Dosh Colleen right away, and they were like, hey, you should have come a long time ago. I don't think that's really breaking an oath. It's just kind of her maybe breaking a rule. <laughs> yeah, or, or or you can just say even if it was supposed to be some kind of an oath, she was unaware of it, perhaps. Right. So, right. Yeah. Officer, I didn't know, officer, I didn't <laughs> know what the speed limit was. You can't blame me for driving 100 miles per hour in this 35 zone. Exactly. <laughs> that happens in LA all the time, does it not? Well, the shoot, yeah. that happens in Atlanta all the time. Yeah. Who are we kidding? Uh, but yeah, uh, I love all of those, Stephanie. I really do. Bubba, how about a point for you? Well, I, I want to make sure, Stephanie, we didn't miss any, did we? Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Did you guys have any that you can think of were oathbreakers? Hmm. I, I bet, I bet why... we'll come up with some more. Yeah, because I was wondering why it was called that, because there's not really an obvious boom right there, you know, in your face. So I kind of had to search for them. Understood. Understood. Well, I like all of those for sure. Okay. Thanks. Bubba, what what else do you got for us? Well, one thing I like to do, because this is a rewatch, is I always look at these episodes 
And for our on the surface segment here at the beginning of the podcast, I always like to look at characters who are no longer with us, who won't be appearing in season eight, who fell along the way. So get ready. This episode has a bunch of them. We have <laughs> Ramsey Bolton, the High Sparrow, King Tommen, the Three-Eyed Raven, Oleana Tyrell, Pycelle, Osha, the Waif, question mark, Mace Tyrell, Kevin Lannister, Ollie, Leaf, Small John Umber, Harold Karstark, Rickenstark, Carl Morrow, Ned Stark, Arthur Dane, Gerald Hightower, Bowen Marsh, and Othel Yarwick. That's a lot of characters in this episode that won't be making it to the final season. That darn straight. Yeah, I uh I, I love that. I always wonder why you put a question mark by the waif. Did did Arya not put the waif's face on the wall? She, well, she put no one's face on the wall. Oh. Uh. I think the time we spent in Bravos didn't actually resolve a lot of things. And yes, she put a face on there, but it was no one's face. And so is the waif dead? Is that oh. version of the face dead? Uh, it'd be interesting to... I, I suppose maybe it wouldn't, because some people really got frustrated in Bravos and like, don't waste season eight <laughs> going back to Bravos storylines. But I, I do like to put a question mark there. A bit like a lot of people from Bravos, heck, Serial Pharrell, people put question marks by his death. So for safety, I add that question mark when I say, the wave... Ah, okay. Hedging your bets. That's very good. That's what we do here uh, often is we hedge our bets. Actually, the way I was looking at the question mark, I was thinking, oh, maybe somebody will put her face on and reappear in season eight. Maybe oh, I, I was point. thinking. Good point. So that, that's, uh, that was my line of thinking. Uh, guys, and uh, despite all of the <laughs> – that's a long list, Bubba. It uh, is a long of, list. That is a long of, list. Of, of dead people and uh, to continue on that subject. And uh, I, I'm really sorry, folks, that I have to depress you in, in this way or um, have to turn this into kind of a group therapy session for me. Um, but on the surface for me, John's first moments, both when he first woke up in the last episode and especially when he tried to get up off of the table in this episode and the look on his face um, absolutely terrified me this time. I, I know that I started off with this podcast explaining why I decided to get back to podcasting. It was for therapy because I had MRSA pneumonia. I was on a vent for eight days, uh, close to eight days. They finally took me off of it on the eighth day. I coded twice. While I was there. And, and one time I specifically remember they had to bring me out of whatever kind of stasis that they had me in at the time. Um, and they were shouting at me, you're septic, you're septic. And I was hearing my blood pressure reading being relayed and it was dropping. I heard a tone and then suddenly it was like something physically pushed me four feet above my body. And I'm sorry to get emotional about this. Um, there was orange colors. There were green colors all around. There was something blurry in the middle. And it was the most peaceful I had ever been. 
and at the same time it was the most terrified I had ever been. And then it was just like all of a sudden everything was back and I was hearing sounds again and um, I have no idea what that was or whether it was just a, a you know some kind of brain chemistry trick or whatever but there is nothing more shocking than coming back into the world that we know from that place whatever it is and when i saw kit harrington's face this time around it just it expressed every feeling that i felt when that happened um I'm sorry, uh, that's all I wanted to say about that. It's just, it's, it's terrifying. Um, and I know that he told Melisandre that there's nothing there. Well, there's something in between here and nothing. I don't know, there may be nothing after that. I don't know how long it lasts, if it's just until your brain actually completely dies or whatever. But I do know that there's something there, and it is seductively peaceful. And it is at the same time extremely terrifying. So, um, Bubba, how about another point from you, please? Matt, I don't know how I can follow that. I, I, right. I mean, that was a powerful moment you just had. And I, I guess on behalf of the listeners, I want to thank you for sharing. That's the kind of things that these are the kind of things that bond us as a podcast family. And I know everybody uh, on all the wonderful podcasts you've uh, helped be a part of, help launch. You know, Matt, you're our Jon Snow. You're, <laughs> you're our Zora High. So thank you for sharing that. Yes, thank you for sharing that. That was, that yeah. was very powerful. I've, I've only ever shared that with close family. Um, Mom was the only one that I really ever shared it with. I just recently shared it with my dad because, well, because there's other things happening with him. Anyway. Um, Bubba, how about another point from you or Stephanie? Okay. Either I'll go, I'll go with an on the surface point and now let me apologize to everybody. I'm going to go back to kind of what I, you know, what I would call on the surface, minor little things. And, and Matt, you pointed out earlier that this is the first episode directed by Daniel Sackheim and he just directs one more. Uh, and I thought to myself, boy, of all these seasons of Game of Thrones, here's a guy He's going to direct two episodes, and that's it. And I started thinking, did this guy really make his mark? I didn't notice anything, especially visual flair is what I was looking for. I believe this fight at the Tower of Joy has some visual flair, but I just couldn't I couldn't see much of his mark on the episode. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe he's trying to blend in with all the, you know, the dozens and dozens of other episodes, but I was just watching it for that because these were the only two. This was one of only two we directed. And, you know, I thought it was okay. I, I think it's a good episode for sure. But this isn't a name of a director who I'll think about when I think about all the great Game of Thrones directors like Alan Taylor and and the rest. And so yeah. I, I didn't know if anybody else had any thoughts about that. I tend to agree with you. Uh, Stephanie, any thoughts about that? Um, you know, the only scene, obviously, that sticks out is the flashback scene, but I, I, I agree with you as well. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Stephanie, what else have you got for us? This is very, very surface level, but we go to so many locations this episode. We go to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, seven places. We're in the narrow seas. 
we're beyond the wall, we're back in time, we're at Winterfell, we're at the wall, we're in Bravos, we're in King's Landing, we're in Marines, we're in Vase Dothrak. We are everywhere this this episode, and we still don't see Sansa. <laughs> you know, you know, having you say it like that, Stephanie, it's like, oh my God, who booked this cruise with all these excursions? We're not getting to spend any time anywhere. No. <laughs> but yeah. I thought that I, I, it, it really, like, I was like, we are everywhere this episode. I mean, we have the story split up a lot, but usually not into this smaller pieces, so right. to speak. Yeah, I agree. Okay, well, this is one. If you listen, uh, Matt was kind enough to mention the Double P Media Group in our podcast about Game of Thrones, the Joffrey of Podcasts, first of his name, first in your heart. But when we reviewed this episode, seeing it the first time way back when, I always thought it was real weird that at the beginning of this episode, Jon Snow has been brought back to life. This is incredible. This is crazy. Oh, here's Melisandre, the the red priestess <laughs> who did it. Hey, Melisandre, wow, here he is, the guy you brought back to life. Would you mind leaving for a minute? I want to talk to my bro here. <laughs> what is Daphos doing? This woman just brought somebody back from the dead, and he's like, uh, could you know... You step outside, lady. Uh, it's time for some locker room talk. What is going on? It makes no sense. Melisandre, can you give us a moment? Uh, uh, what? Like you're going to provide some knowledge? You didn't have it? I mean, okay, Davos, it was your idea to pitch the idea to Melisandre. But, you know, I don't know. It doesn't well, that, make that, much sense to me. That That's exactly what uh, Kelly and Holly were thinking. They were thinking, how odd that Davos would suddenly come to Melisandre to... You know, uh, understandably, he turned to Melisandre while they were still in peril. But once Alistair Thorne and all those guys have been captured by the wildlings, then you think, well, why does he suddenly now need to, to resurrect Jon Snow? There, there, was a, there was like, this is just a wave of the hand writer's thing. There was nobody else to ask in the location of Jon's body, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then you're right. This makes it even more odd. It's like, oh, please, please, please bring my Lord Commander back, who I don't even really know and don't even really care about. And then the second <laughs> she comes back, and uh, I, I almost feel like that that was just the writer's way of saying she's asking all the questions that we want to ask, but we don't really have any answers for you. So uh, <laughs> uh, let's get her out of the room as quick as possible. And and I wrote in the notes here. I'm like, why doesn't every single person suddenly convert to the Lord of Light? I mean, goodness gracious, you just saw this guy brought back. Why don't the wildlings suddenly go, okay, screw you, old gods, work with this. Wait, <laughs> why is Davos? Davos, this is a miracle, man. And I know you saw a shadow demon come out of her. But still, come on, buddy. I mean, yeah. Uh, he's never really thought much of Melisandre. It's like she came, she was a means to an end. It's like, okay, on your way, maybe. Uh, but you're right. Um, I know that. If I was Tormund Giantsbane, I loved that hug between Tormund and John when he first came out, and the, the little conversation about certain part of anatomy. Uh, <laughs> I thought that I thought that was brilliant. I, I, you know, it was nice to, after something so serious, um, for me to be able to laugh for a moment because it was really kind of deep and dark and terrible for me in a lot of ways until this until that moment. Um, so that really helped me out. But yeah, I mean, if I was Tormund Giantsbane and this happened. I, I'd have uh, proclaimed, you know, the Lord of Light is something that we should all follow, despite the size of what's his name's what's or whatsoever. 
<laughs> in this episode, it's the first time here in this season that we see Sam and Gilly and baby Sam. And the scene really only exists to remind the audience these characters exist and explain <laughs> where they're going to be going for the rest of the season. I think Gilly, I, I guess I didn't really have a big problem with it, but this is Gilly who's never seen the sea at all. And she's able to be fine on this rocking boat. Uh, uh, you know, Gilly, hell yeah. You know, she maybe she should be in charge of everything. She's got no <laughs> fear. And then uh, no kidding. Baby Sam, I always like to point this out. Baby Sam was born in season three. Here we are three <laughs> episodes into season six. He's grown a bit, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I think winter will come before, you know, baby Sam learns to speak. Mm. I think he's still the same age, even in season eight or seven, whenever we see him next. I think he's still still the same age. Like he's just uh, he's not growing up. I wish they would let him grow like they allowed Rick and Bran to grow. And suddenly, like, come here, baby Sam. I'm shaving, Mom. Give me a minute. <laughs> I, here's the thing that I got about the whole Gilly thing not being scared. And I hate to apologize for the show, but I will in this case. She does, in the dialogue, mention that she's been hanging out with the captain. And if the captain says, oh, this is normal, this is okay, then how is she to know any different? You know what? Also, because your stomach Gilly. is turning. Now, well, Sam's stomach is turning. Her stomach Give is Gilly not. Gilly some drama me. <laughs> I think Gilly just has like this wide-eyed wonder about the world that like everybody else doesn't have. Because, you know, she was just stuck with crazy old Craster like in one place her whole life. And now she gets to see beyond the sea and she's seen the wall and she's just like. She's loving it all. I, I think that's her like take on it. <laughs> yeah. And and Stephanie, to, to add to your Oathbreaker uh kind of thing, I did have one actually as I look at my as I look at my notes. How about if you think about Sam is being challenged uh by Gilly to basically break the Citadel oath the same way that he kind of in a way had to break the Night's Watch oath. You know, she oh, wants to go one. with him. Um, yeah, that, that's a good one. Yeah, so that's uh, and and of course uh, the father of my son's statement really got me. Also, that was uh, that was sweet. Yeah, I'd never do that to the father of my son. I just oh boy, I I uh, and and you've got puke humor, you know, for us more <laughs> on, for someone like me who's more on the low level of intellect. That definitely rings funny, and uh, there's nothing better than that. I don't. Know what else I have in terms? Oh, let me. But uh, how about Arya too? Maybe Arya is a little better than that because I really love uh, the whole bit about her uh, coming back. Um, is she no one? No, and I'm not going to go into the long thing to make Bubba just yawn and and fall asleep. But I I just love the fact that she is able to continue to say that Jockin is just continuing to make her play the role so that he can continue to give the skills. He knows that she's not no one and she knows that she's not no one. She's still got needle hidden away, which she will use later on this season, but they play the game just, you know, because the cameras are on, uh, you know, you never, the, the, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of gods in that room. They have to, they have to play it up to the gods. All right. Okay. If you say so. Ah, ah. Speaking of Arya, though, this is one thing that's, I once again, I think this is a good episode 
but it feels a bit weird. Here we are, the third episode into season six, and it feels like a good chunk of this episode is cleaning up the cliffhangers at from the end of season five. So if you think about season five, it ended on a cliffhanger of, oh my gosh, John's dead. And admittedly, by the end of episode two, it's like, no, not so much. <laughs> at the end of season five, Arya, I'm blind. I can't see. The third episode of season six, eh, you know, you don't have to see an eye doctor. You can see again. Uh, Daenerys herself, oh, I've been surrounded by the Dothraki. In next episode, it's like, forget the Dothraki. I'm in charge. And so that's a very TV-like thing, to have big cliffhangers at the end of the season. And then seemingly they get, you know, kind of washed away or, or ignored for even a, a, a brutal take on it. And it's weird to see mm. Game of Thrones do it. Uh, many of these things kind of I knew were coming. I think anybody watching could think, well, okay, maybe they left Jamie without a hand and they left Bran crippled. But they're not going to leave Arya blind. They're not going to leave Jon right. dead because he has so much to do. Daenerys. It is kind of a repeat to have her go back with the Dothraki. So let's get it over with quick. Uh, and so I guess I don't mind that it's so much of like, hey, okay, everybody, everything's fine. That explains why we went to so many places, too, to tie up the loose ends or the little cliffhangers, like you said. Mm, that's exactly right. Yeah. And uh, I, I like that whole notion of uh, get these things out of the way. You know, what What you see here... Bubba, I think you and Stephanie will agree, is the writers were pinned to some significant things in the books, and now they're free of that. And they want to get on to bigger bullet points that maybe George gave them or bigger bullet points that they think that they have on their own. And so it's like, okay, well, George, you go ahead and keep trying to untie that Marinese knot. We're <laughs> moving on, you know. Um, I kind of feel like that that was the the whole goal of some of this stuff. Um, and it it was sloppy, admittedly. I agree completely. My final on-the-surface little point is the very scene. And I actually do like the scene a lot. But as I'm watching it, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, boy, the only reason why this scene exists is so that we can give the actor, Conleth Hill, a scene worthy of his talents and a scene worthy of him showing up for season six to do. So I liked it a lot. but. I think that whole scene is just kind of on the surface, and I don't know if anybody else had any deeper thoughts to it. So that's why I put it on the surface. No, I, I completely agree. It's a, it's a showcase of Varys doing what Varys does best, using information uh, to move things along. Uh, we've seen him do it with uh, with the whole bit about Sansa and Elena Tyrell, uh, which ultimately ended up in Tyrion marrying Sansa. This is This is... A typical Varys problem that Varys has managed to solve, um, and only for, what, a, a fortnight worth of peace, more or less? Right. Yes. And I, I, agree, I agree with giving Conley Hill a scene. He's just such an awesome actor. Like, I could listen to him reading the dictionary in his Varys character. Like, I, I think he's underutilized, but yeah, I love him. <laughs> Very good. Do we have a do we have anything else on the surface, guys? No, we've done some good surface stuff. Let's get deep. Let's go deep to three big things. Three big things. Let's let uh, Stephanie once again lead us off. I got to start with my favorite thing: 
the thing I was so excited about when the season came out. It's still something I'm so excited about. The Tower of Joy. Yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> Let's get ready to rumble. Woo. You know, like I said, I, I know the book readers were excited about it. Um, I don't know about non-book readers because they probably did, they obviously didn't know about it. But this, I was just so excited. I'm still excited about the scene. I wish it went on for the whole episode. That's just my, uh, you know, preliminary thoughts on the Tower of Joy. But you guys get into into the deep stuff. But I'm just so excited for this. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was an incredible exploration into something that we've all imagined about. Um, hopefully, seeing George Penn at one point in front of us. Uh, one of my points, if you, if you look at this as as a critical piece of information for book readers and non book readers alike, the, the POVs in the books uh, really must be held accountable um, to a person's perceptions. And so what we get of memory of Ned or whatever, but this, when you're in TV, it's, it's more documentary style. Right. We're seeing, well, we're seeing what, we're seeing what the writers want us to see, of course, but it's still, we're looking at this from the outside. We're not just looking at this from the inside of Ned's head or from the inside of Arthur Dane's head. And man, is Arthur Dane one bad blankety blank, 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 blank. Yes, he (laughs) sure is. Um, and, and even Helen Reed's actions, uh, yes. gives us kind of a BR perspective on, on maybe why Ned and Helen Reed are, are absolutely so tight. Now, who's to say if George ever were to do the same scene that it would come out exactly the same way? Uh, but not only did Helen save his life, um, but the manner in which he did was, was never revealed as far as we know as book readers or in the television show. Um, to the north. I mean, th- this is right. kind of gang warfare right here, you know, ganging up on one bad bleepity bleep 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 Arthur man. Dane. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Ned even not revealing John seems so much more admirable now when you consider the way that when, when we know him older, that he did lie, um, and, and pardon me, Joffrey, I know, or pardon me, Joffrey, pardon me, Bubba, I know that you're going to uh, come at me on this, but, uh, you know, about Joffrey, uh, him lying about Joffrey, and, and then you have this murder right here. I, it's just one of those things that's like, man, there's so many things that are here. And our prince wanted us here. I uh, mean, there's a big, big drop as to, you know, Rhaegar protecting Lyanna. As we find out at the end of the season, if you put the two pieces together, definitely makes it a key clue to the, you know, annulment and the valid wedding that we see between Liana and Rhaegar in season seven. Finally, uh, what I feel is most important about this, despite all of the fun, I really love the fact that this reveals how flawed Bran can be, which ultimately leads to a lot of terrible things in a couple of episodes. Hmm. Um, what do you mean you know, by that? Ins- what do you mean by that? Well, yeah, what do you mean by that? His insistence to stay at this spot um, might be the reason that his connection to Hodor 
is so strong later on. Um, it, it's definitely the reason that the Night King was able to penetrate the tree when you look at it. He, he, he is flawed in the way that he wants to pursue on his own and ignore the guidance of the three-eyed raven. That's what, that's what allows these things to happen in my mind. Also, maybe at a personal cost to him, staying deep in the past, uh, as he does when he has to do the download because of his own impatience. Uh, you know, it's just like Mira saying to him, when you warg into the wolf for too long, you become, you lose yourself in the wolf. Could Bran have not become returned from all of these downloads one at a time, still being Bran if he hadn't gone so deep and stayed so long? So those are some of the, the things that I just gathered from that of just about Bran, let alone the incredibleness of, of seeing what we saw. All right. Okay. Okay. I would say, what is uh, our good buddy, the Three-Eyed Raven, say? If you stay under the sea too long, you are drowned. It's mm-hmm. always summer under the sea. I know, I know. I know, I know. <laughs> yes, and now we now we know who else Bran is. He's not just the Night King. He's not just every Bran that was ever born. As all of these people came up with these crazy theories that I laughed at. Uh, it is. I mean, I'm a big fan of Bran, Bran everywhere. But yeah. that's just a a, a a bird cawing or or something or a tree leaves shaking in the wind. To me, that's Bran, but not Bran is. You know, Euron, who is uh, Dario Naharis, who is <laughs> the faceless man. Yeah, those are some is, old you – know. oh, we're doing some deep callbacks there, listeners, to some old <laughs> crazy theory time. Yeah, yeah. So throw all the crackpot out and you still have uh, some fun things to think about. Okay, some of my big things uh, in my first big point here about the Tower of Joy is I really love this scene. But in some ways, it kills me, kind of like it killed Arthur Dane. But the scene is only two minutes long. The fight, excuse me, is only two minutes long. (laughs) Darn it. It's so good. Let it go, man. Let's get rid of some of this other stuff and let this fight go. Admittedly, when you see Ned do the final slash to, you know, end Arthur's life entirely, that takes it a little bit over two minutes, but it's so, so quick. I also wonder, right now, here we are as kind of three deep in the woods, Game of Thrones kind of nerds. (laughs) For people who hadn't been paying attention, you know, the show didn't do a great job of setting these things back up again. In the very first episode where we met Jojen and Mira Reed back in season three, Bran says to them, oh, your father saved my father. And yet Bran never, you know, he was like, oh, dad, you told me this guy saved you? How? Bran never asked how? Right. And, you know, and, and... Bran, when he comes back from this vision, he never has a scene of Mira saying, oh, wow, you know, I used to went back in time and saw the moment when your dad saved my dad. No, they didn't have any connection like that. And just another thing about it that I just happen to wonder is, let me stay, you know, I, I, I'm not doing this to, you know, make myself seem so brilliant. But when I read the books, this is always the way I imagined the way the Tower of Joy went down. I think... George R. R. Martin is kind of setting it up to be like, okay, Ned was getting his tush kicked and uh, some guy stabbed him in the back. To be honest, it made perfect sense to me. And because it made so much sense to me and I understood kind of the reasons and stuff, 
I'm always a bit kind of shook that Bran acts to it, reacts to it so bad. He stabbed him in the back. Yeah, he did stab. You know, yes, <laughs> you know, Mira's and Jojen's father, Howland Reed, did stab Arthur Dane in the back, but he did it to save, you know, to save his buddy. When did any of us stab somebody in the back to save our buddy? True. Jamie stabbed the Mad King in the back. Everybody hates it, but as soon as you find out, oh, he did it to save the city, it's like, okay, hooray, he stabbed him in the back. Not so bad. And so the fact that Bran reacts to it so negatively and so almost kind of hurt, it's a, it's it's an interesting take on it. I love the fact that Bran calls out to his father and his father does hear him or hears the wind, yeah. whatever it would be. I mean, what a great moment. What a great way to illustrate this whole story coming together like a bow. Love it. Stephanie, you have a thought here about the three-eyed raven explaining that the rest of the envisions. Because, he, you know, Bran, just as we were talking about, Bran wanted to stay in the vision. He wanted to see what was in the tower, just like Ned wanted to see what was in the tower. And the three-eyed raven says, you know, the rest of that vision is intended for another time. Um, and, you know, we do eventually see the rest of that vision. I, is it this season or is it in season seven when we see the rest of that? It's at the. It's in the season finale of this season. Okay, season is. finale. So we do. We do come back to this vision, um, which is a whole other thing. But you know, I also um, wanted to talk about just Arthur Dane here for a minute. Uh, I don't think just TV show watchers know much about Arthur Dane, but in the books, he is the greatest swordsman. He is um, from a house called the House of Dane in. Um, in Dorn, um, he's called the Sword of the Morning, and you know, in this scene, he has two swords. Like, how cool is that? I don't think we've seen that in Game of Thrones yet, but that was pretty awesome to see. And I'm not big on fighting scenes, but again, this is one of my favorite scenes ever. And I just thought the double sword play and seeing Arthur Dane and feeling seeing Howland Reed, it was, um, you know, it, it it was just kind of a book reader's dream come true. I think. Obviously, I think, you know, there's things that could have changed, but I'm not going to complain about that. I was just excited to get any part of this. <laughs> right on. Any other thoughts about the Tower of Joy? It's great seeing it. We, we you know, we don't talk about location managing so much, but talk about a great, beautiful location, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I don't even yeah. know where that one was filmed. Somewhere in Spain. That's all. Uh, that's all I know. And also pretty that site is supposed to be near nothing and so uh they found the perfect place to represent this location iconic location to book readers i really thought it was good one other minor note about the tower of joy is it just me or does the guy who plays young howland reed look more like a young sean bean than the guy who plays young sean bean uh, slash young ned stark agreed agreed he does uh I I think that uh, young the actor who played young young Ned Stark said, uh, "No, where it ends." Uh, I thought that that was pretty good. Yeah, his voice uh, is great, and he's a very good actor. Just physically, if if you would line the two of them up in a lineup and said, "Okay, which one of these is young Ned Stark?" I go, "Oh, that guy." Right, and you'd be pointing to Helen Reed. Right, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Uh, what else do we have in three big things? Stephanie, you got another one. You know, we've talked about it a little bit, but obviously John 
resurrection. That is a, you know, Matt, you talked about your experience and, you know, I think we were, uh, you know, we haven't gotten this in the book yet. So we were all hoping that John would be resurrected after he died, but, you know, we, we weren't sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, one interesting thing that um, of this scene before, um, or, you know, when, Davos kicks Mel out, but when she's talking, uh, I think she called John the prince that was promised. Yes. So, because she originally thought Stannis was, and now, you know, she brings John back to life and she calls him the prince that was promised. Um, and, you know, that is a whole nother theory and goes back into lore and with Rhaegar and everything. I thought that was a really interesting tidbit. Agreed. Absolutely. Well, if I could just yeah. piggyback on Stephanie's good point about John. And say that this is such a, you know, kind of monumental thing for the story to have happen, to have a character as important as John die and then come back. And so is it really, I think effectively so far, we could say, is it really because we needed John to leave the Night Watch? We needed John to be crowned king in the North. Um we needed John to lead a really dumb expedition to go find a white. Uh, I'm trying to think, or at this point, can John not die again? Because it'd be like, okay, we've seen him die once. We're not going to fall for this again as an audience. And that means John's going to live all the way through to the end. These are some of the thoughts I think about as this is the second of my three big things. I think about when I see John go through this, you know, kind of this resurrection and the show ending bit of my watch is ended later losers <laughs> yeah well and and think of the lurch that it kind of leaves the night's watch in uh and uh, that was kind of the reasoning that i kind of put in my head as to why davos would have wanted john brought back it's like wait a minute this guy that i sent to go get the wildlings he's gonna be the leader no we can't have that <laughs> And yet, that's exactly what happens from here on out. Uh, it's wear it, burn it, I don't care, John says to Ed. And I was just thinking, Dolores Ed is Lord Commander. Uh, John, is, John has served his time, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but it is a huge moment for, for the story in terms that um, John gets an out. And maybe the, the whole purpose of this death was to get him an out. I, as far as, you know, buying into him dying again, well, he doesn't have Melisandre around to save him anymore. He doesn't have Thoros of Mirror to possibly save him, uh, nor does Beric Dondarrion. So, uh, it, John's even said later on in this season, I think right before the Battle of the Bastards, if I die, don't bring me back. Uh, so I think that John's death is something that I will completely buy into if it happens again in the future. Okay, what if he dies and is brought back a second time? What if he starts doing a barrack? If he starts doing a barrack? he refuses to leave. It's like, come on, barrack. (laughs) Well, then I just say, well, there you go. We've got another barrack Dondarrion, and and that's okay. And and just the way that if you look at the the episode where they go chasing a white, um, the way that barrack and John kind of team up to think, well, maybe if we just kill the Night King... Instead of messing with all of these other guys, um, it really sets the battle. And I, I feel like the whole Azora High thing, um, it, not to get too much into the books, but it doesn't just have to be one person, right? 
Um, could Beric be as much of a part of the Azorahai machine as Daenerys is, as Jon is? Um, so I, I love the aspect of that, just the fact that even though Beric's probably slipping down the north side of a wall at about 600 feet uh, a second, and he's a big splatter on the ground, uh, maybe not. Maybe him and Tormund got away, and and so uh, the quest continues for the undead to face the undead. You know what? Let the dead rest, damn it. <laughs> I say so, too. Uh, in a lot of ways, yes. <clears throat> or or wh- why didn't Melisandre, when seeing this tragic hero struck down, decide to bring him back to life? And I mean Ollie. Yeah. The Ollie apologist right here, folks. What is Ollie going to do for us? What is Ollie going to do for us, Bubba? Is he the prince that was promised? Is he the song of ice and fire? Who's to say he couldn't be given a a dragon glass tip to his uh, arrow and he could shoot and kill the Night King? He's a great arrow shot, as we saw with Egret. True, true. He he took Egret out uh, from quite a distance. And with a nice little smirk on his face, he got him some, uh, that was the one place where Ollie's justice was actually accurate. He took out one of the girls who took out his whole village, as opposed to turning a dagger on his Lord Commander, who had nothing to do with what happened to his village. You know what? You never made a mistake as a kid. You let <laughs> let it dro- drop it, Matt. Come uh, on, one tiny mistake. Just, and it didn't even, a... it didn't even, you know, he was dead, you know, what, maybe a day? Ollie, okay, uh, you killed somebody who was dead for a day. Go to your room with less porridge than usual. Give him just a couple months in juvie. He'll be fine. Juvie? Come on. Walk Wait, it what off. Would juvie be the wall anyway? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fair enough point. What else have we got on three big things? My third big thing is, once again, just some of the process, some of the, the you know, for lack of a better word, story beats that are hitting here in season six. And it feels like a lot of the scenes in this episode, I think they're all really good, but they're all setting up things that are going to be paid off much later. This blind Arya fight versus the Waif is setting up the way that Arya is going to defeat the Waif, or did she, later in the uh, season? We have Tommen. With a high sparrow setting up, okay, Tommen's going to have to choose between his gods and his mother. And in some ways, he chose these gods. And so we're seeing the beginning of that take place here. And so when you're arcing out a season, you know, for things to make sense, you do have to have these setup scenes. I enjoy most of them. And so I just think it's an interesting look in the process of how how you try to tell a story across 10 episodes, knowing that for this final season we only have six episodes and so those those beats naturally have to happen faster maybe that's why so many people in season seven felt it moved too much and didn't like the pace and all this travel is because you kind of had to have the same emotional journey if you want the same emotional journey that the characters had over 10 episodes you suddenly had to really speed it up to have that fit into seven yeah i mean i agree that that we we had to set it all up to get it moving, but I still don't like the pace of season seven. I know we're not talking about that, but it was just it was too much. 
I'm delighted by the fact that a season eight won't fall under the same kind of trap, perhaps, that a season seven does, because the episodes will be longer. You cannot fill 90 minutes an episode full of battle after battle after battle after battle. Um, And I think that it, it will be great to see whether the writers decide to go deeper within a single scene or whether they just have the progression happen over more scenes in a single episode. Where will um, we get, I want to hear both you and Stephanie, I want to hear your creative ideas. You've only got six episodes left. Where do you slide in this exposition? Like in what episode you mean? Right. Or so how? like, like I think I guess what you would do is you'd have, hmm, who could it be? Okay, you send Jorah, you send Jorah to a brothel in the north. And he's like, so the Night King is coming for us. We have to use this dragon glass from Dragonstone that the Khaleesi help us mine to kill him. Yes, uh, while I'm doing this, uh, put on the blonde wig and start whining about where your dragons are. I'll show you in a minute. Oh, my. <laughs> no, it's not where I would put it. Not where, with Jorah. Okay, where? In the middle of the battle? Not in the middle of the battle either. Let's see. Uh, whoa. About how about this? How about how about this? Sure. We, we've seen scenes with Littlefinger kind of staring into a peephole, watching a guy staring into a peephole, watching a thing, right? <laughs> so why can't Tyrion just be having this deep conversation with Varys on the boat while he's watching John oh, and Danny do it? Oh, that's all. That's a brilliant idea. It writes itself. <laughs> I, I, how about this one? We begin the very first scene in, in season eight. You see Tormund climbing down from the wall. Hey, Beric, this is the end. Dead are coming for us. It's now or never. Let me go F this bear. <laughs> I was wondering where the bear was going to come it in. It like, always comes in. Yes, I, I, was, I, was, I was half expecting in the Eastwatch episode for Tormund to uh, succumb the bear simply by uh, having its way with having his way with it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, in the next episode, Beyond the Wall, remember they're attacked by a bear It'd be great if Tormund went, is that you? Yeah. Oh, you were the one. Oh, yeah. Oh. See, guys, I told you that. Was a, I told you I was telling the truth. Oh, very good. Yeah, Beyond the Wall. That was the episode I was referring to, not the Eastwatch episode. So sorry. You guys are a mess. <laughs> we, a complete mess. <laughs> All right, let's get back on track. Stephanie, I know this is one of your three big things, and you mentioned this really pivotal scene in Winterfell. Do you want to talk about that? Yes. Oh my gosh. Winterfell. So Winterfell, as we know, is taken over still by the Boltons. Um, our friend Bruce is dead. You know, he was poisoned. Remember you guys. Nothing by his happened. enemies. Yeah. There was, there was no foul play there. Um, he was poisoned. <laughs> we know everybody believes it. And Guess who makes an appearance? We haven't seen him for years. We don't know if he's alive. We didn't know where he's come from. Rickon. Rickon makes an appearance. Yay. <laughs> oh. Um, we have small John Umber bringing him. And I guess that's where Rickon has been. Uh, but, you know, small John Umber, as we discussed at the very beginning, he broke his oath to the Starks and he... He's still weary of Ramsey Bolton, uh, but he says, oh, yeah, like, you know, I'll align with you. And here's Rickon. And 
here's proof of Rickon, and we see Shaggy Dog's head, which mm. is the saddest thing that's ever happened. I'm more sad about Shaggy Dog than I am about Stannis. <laughs> mm. um, but that's just kind of explaining what's going on there. I think I- I'm a little disappointed that we bring back Rickon for this and I think maybe like a couple other scenes and then he's gone again and by gone I mean dead um yeah I I kind of didn't like that part what do you guys think about this whole scene well they bring him back Stephanie and they never don't give him any lines he doesn't speak once (laughs) oh he doesn't does he no, he does. So I really think he's only in two episodes. I think he's in this one in the Battle of the Bastards, and I'm positive he doesn't speak in either of them. And so, yeah, it's kind of tough. The show, and admittedly, I think the books as well, have a hard time getting you to invest in Rickon as a character because in the books he's so young and kind of vanishes even earlier than he does on the show. Or no, I guess he vanishes. Yeah, no, he does vanish yeah. earlier than he did on the show in the books. And so. I think the actor, actually, I want to give Art Pakinson, I believe that's his last name, but I think he does. He did a great job in season two, and he, you know he really doesn't have much acting to do this season other than look upset and frustrated that you've been captured and then run for your life. It seems to me that poor Rickon, the only kind of significant role that he was given was season one and... Um, a little bit of season three where you saw these consistencies of him and brand seeing the same things, right? right. Like you had, uh, and, and it, it was kind of the one kind of cobblestone that you really had to put your foot in to say, okay, there's more than one Stark that's a green seer or, okay, there's more than one Stark that's a war. You could then look at Rob and say, okay, he becomes a wolf as they were telling the stories like Lancelot or whatever in season two. Okay. Maybe Rob can work. Um, you know, so you think, then you start to think, well, can Arya, can Sansa, just like in the books, there are, there's evidence of all of the Starks being able to do this, but because the television show needed Bran to be so special, they had nothing to do for Rickon. Um, and let's face it, the, the term shaggy dog, as we all know, um, main, mainly means, uh, what, a road to nowhere in a lot of ways, a shaggy dog story. So, um, oh, that's true. I is, that. <laughs> is George telling us that Rickon, no matter what happens in the books, that he won't matter there either? Or did Dave and Dan just say, man, we've got no place for this dude, but we got to find a way to tie up this loose end because Winterfell has to be given to Jon Snow, not to Rickon, you know, so let's let's just tie all this up in, in one nice shiny bow. Well, the one thing I've said on multiple podcasts with you, Matt, is that you know, if I were doing some psychological guessing about George R. R. Martin, I always thought Rickon was created only so George R. R. Martin could do his spin on a real life event from the War of the Roses, and that's the two princes in the tower. Everybody oh. can look that up real quick uh, if if you're not familiar with the War of the Roses. But the two princes in the tower were two princes who were brought into the Tower of London, and they're kind of they, for lack of a better word, whatever happened to him, nobody knew. There were not even any bodies ever really uh, at the time shown to be, okay, these are the two dead princes who were killed so somebody else could, you know, take over. And in season two, you have the equivalent of that story with the two princes being 
Brian and Rick on and Theon being the one to take him over. And in some ways, uh, at, at the end of season two, the second book, they disappear a bit like the real life princes in the tower. Uh, if they didn't disappear, I think a lot of people suspect they were killed in the tower of London and their bodies hidden. Uh, I always felt that's the only reason why Rickon existed. And so if, if he has a, is just an, uh, uh, kind of a threadbare, uh, f- uh, plot in the books as he does in the show, uh, it will be very much a shaggy dog story. Agreed. Agreed. I, I really like this in the tower comparison, Bubba, because I really like the War of the Roses and the whole that leading into the Tudor era, and I never thought of it that way. But that that's excellent. Which means, mm. like you just said, it's a Shaggy Dog story. Which means he ain't go. Rickon's story's going nowhere. <laughs> I know. Oh, poor Rickon. <laughs> and uh, and it, it 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 was certainly. Do you guys remember the first time you saw this, and you think to yourself? Oh God, how terrible is this? Uh, I see this scene and all I can think about is, is they left Bran at the end of season three, pretty much. And if they went straight to find the Umber Castle, but then they were treated like this immediately once they arrived. Oh my God, what a terrible couple of years. And then death for Osha and Rickon, who even if they haven't been around much, and it is maybe difficult for us as an audience to connect with them, seeing how Rickon's death affects john so much it is painful to see right absolutely well and doesn't umber even say here that they're they're the one of the further north castles that their their holdfast is is one of the ones closer to the wall yeah and that's why they've always had to deal with those wildlings right so and i hate to bring a question into this but my whole thing was you know as much as osha wanted to get away from the wall why didn't she find a castle further south she trusted Bran. She Bran yeah. told her to go there, and so she trusted yeah. him. Okay, I like Bran a lot, but boy, he's got a lot of L's on his resume. Yeah. Bran's Bran is flawed. Bran is definitely flawed. There's no doubt about that. Yet another one. Yet another one. Uh, the little lord said, "We go here, and look what it got us." Oh. Gosh. Oh, <laughs> uh, what else have we got? Uh, Bubba, do you have another one? No, I just wanted to say as a real uh, kind of minor point about this uh, big point about the Winterfell scene is he also was only in two episodes. But I actually kind of really like this small the actor who plays small John Umber. He's got a he's got a, you know, kind of braggart kind of big personality that really works. Much like uh, his predecessor. Uh, the great John Umber, who was right. hanging with Rob, right? You know, yeah. season it, one, Clive Revel, that actor did a great job with the same thing. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I think that's a great point on that. Uh, I'm going to switch over to Essos for a second. I'm going to go to the Dash Colleen because uh, this is a big thing for me because Danny learns that she's just kind of one of many who have dreamt the same dream that that she has had, and that's basically to rule. It, to me, it's critical because. Rather than accept that the way all of these other members of the Dashkaline have accepted it, um, she fights against it and, and she does eventually do something about it when you have the whole temple fire in the next episode and then the return to Marine and then going on to Westeros. Uh, so for me, uh, it's being told what she isn't that, uh, to me is very inspiring to her and makes her 
become what she is. I think that's a good point, Matt. I I know this is one of your big things. I'll just say because I kind of because I knew where this storyline had to go, she had to get back to Marine somehow. She couldn't be a uh, you know she couldn't spend all her time with the Dothraki. To me, I always get antsy on all these scenes, even in a rewatch sense like this, kind of being like, "Okay, get on with it. Let's go. We know where mm. we know where the end is, and so let's get to it." And the show doesn't I, I, always feel like that for me. So, right on. I, now, see, I'm I'm much more of a journey guy, and I'm not saying that you're not, but I am much more of a of a journey guy as opposed to an end destination guy, and so I savor moments like this where you can see the physical decision being made. Um, that's just the way that I look at things. I know I look at things a lot differently than most people. Uh, my mind is screwed up in that way. Uh, some people will say even, but uh, I, I really do. I, I, I savor the journey. Lost taught me uh, in, a, in a terrible way that it is all about the journey and oh not about the destination. Oh boy. Uh, and so I, I really look out for these kind of moments. The magic had a plan is someone uh, or the magic didn't have a plan, as somebody used to say about that show Lost. Uh, One thing about let me let me have a tidbit. Your big, big point is I love consistency. I love it when an actor who plays Kevin Lannister in season one and season two suddenly shows up again in season five and he's still Kevin Lannister. I don't like multiple versions of actors playing the mountain. I didn't like two different actresses playing Marcella. And so one kind of tiny tangent to this is how, wait a minute, we're going back to Vez Dothrak, and yet it looks completely, the landscape looks completely different. Before we were walking over this hill, and yeah, there were two horse statues, but they weren't these kind of unrealistic, ridiculous things here that we see in this episode. And so I, I was upset that the show didn't try to make the two the the dos the vase dothrak location from season one try to recreate that here in season six as opposed to just be like well listen we're sh- we shot that originally the the very brief exteriors of vase dothrak actually in ireland the wide shot of it going over the mountain there by the horse statues and then the kind of other parts of vase dothrak that weren't on a soundstage were shot in malta we're here in season six. They're shooting it in Spain. And so I know, boy, that's got to be practically impossible to get them to match. But they didn't really try. And so that always upset me. My stickler well, for my stickler for detail. Sense. I totally I totally get that, Bubba. Uh, I our friend Kelly in the first episode encouraged me to use my energy to, that I would use to criticize it to instead use it to imagine. And what I always imagined was, well, this is a different entrance. Now, I can't explain why the rest of it looks different, <laughs> but I can explain why the entrance looks different. Well, they're coming in from the other side of the, of the city. Okay. All right. Um, I'm going to uh, pretend that you- I, I'm going to use my imagination to come up with a better way to use my imagination than that but sure okay <laughs> you've come up with an imagination to use your mute button oh sorry to, to i'll mute to, myself to, okay no to to no, not to mute yourself but to mute me if possible no, that's what i was saying oh very good very good uh stephanie do you have any last of your big things here nope i got all my big things <laughs> and bubba you got all of yours 
Yeah, I'd say let's roll into some questions. Questions. See, it even sounds like the way that I have the little bumper, uh, and I appreciate, Bubba, you taking the time to do those voiceovers for me. Um, questions are the things that we have about this episode. I already brought one up about why is OSHA uh, uh, so able to go closer to the wall as opposed to getting further away from it because she hated it so much. Bubba answered that eloquently. One thing I would like to do in my first question here is uh, play a clip for you all and listen to Alistair Thorne's last words to Jon Snow and ask this question uh, to everybody after the conclusion. I had a choice, Lord Commander. Betray you or betray the Night's Watch. You brought an army of wildlings into our lands. An army of murderers and raiders. If I had to do it all over, knowing where I'd end up, I pray I'd make the right choice again. I'm sure you would, Sir Alistair. I fought. I lost. Now I rest. But you, Lord Snow, you'll be fighting their battles forever. There's no indication that he ever felt that he was being disloyal to his vows. Um, is he a murderer? Absolutely. But can you admire his devotion to what he perceived his vows were uh, by the way that he addressed Jon Snow there at the end and resigned that he had lost, but was never, ever apologetic for making the fight. I found that kind of admirable myself, but I would like to ask each of you if you, how you felt about Alistair Thorne in that case in his final words. Stephanie, start with you. You know, I can see a case for both of for both sides, honestly. Yes, he's admirable in that he's, you know, standing by his convictions. He's saying, I didn't do anything wrong. You were a traitor. I can see that point and that, that it's admirable. But then again, you're murdering the, the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch by something you perceive as traitor, treasonous. And it's all had to do with John letting the wildlings through. I don't know. I guess I don't know why that's really treason. Um, I guess it de depends on your definition well, of treason. <laughs> I, 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 the way that I liken this, as far as Alistair Thorne goes, and this is what I love about this show is it makes these characters so incredibly complex, is I think of Alistair Thorne looking at Jon Snow by releasing the wildlings on the gift. It's not that much different than... King Ares saying, burn them all and, and lighting wildfire. Uh, in it, this is from Alistair Thorne's perception, white lighting wildfire all throughout King's Landing. Um, the wildlings could easily, with an army as much as Jon Snow brought through, have ravaged much of the North on their own and said, Oh, thanks, Jon. See you later and gone. And, you know, uh, so I feel like Alistair by stabbing John and leading this group to kill John wasn't all that much different than Jamie st stabbing the mad King in the back from Alistair, everybody. For, yeah, from his perspective. Now, right. na naturally we realize as viewers that John is, is actually saving that number of people from becoming, you know, the part of the army of the dead, which they naturally would have become. So there's a, there's a big picture there. 
And Alistair probably didn't see that. But I think from Alistair's perspective, perspective, he's looking at this situation no differently than uh, the way that Jamie was looking at King Ares. And uh, call me crazy. I mean, I, that's nobody. It's not like it hasn't been done before. What do you think, Bubba? I think first and foremost, I want to give a shout out to the actor Owen Teal, who all these years pl- portrayed Alistair Thorne. So great. So well-rounded. Yeah, of an antagonist. He's not really a villain unless, you know, until maybe this moment in the series, he's an antagonist, but he is an antagonist that the show has tried to kind of show different shadings of. I think removing it from this specific example, I'm a real, I'm really uncomfortable with saying somebody, well, they had strong beliefs. Yes, they were terrible beliefs. And so they followed those terrible beliefs to kill somebody, I, I, you know, that's one way you could spin Alistair Thorne's thing is, uh, I believed it was the right thing to do, and I did it. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people do terrible, evil things that way. On the flip side, um, John really, really kind of blew it as a leader, and so I guess I do want to tip my cap to him for going down with his terrible beliefs. If you're going to have terrible beliefs, keep them to the end. Good work, Alistair. <laughs> well, it seems like Bubba I, and I can see both sides of it, and Matt just wants to be Team Alistair Thorne. <laughs> you know, uh, there's another new stuff be- there. Better Matt. Team Alistair Thorne than Team Ollie. Oh, hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. So this that was your question. Here's one of my questions for everybody. Okay, so Jon Snow, Ollie, are they really any different? Ollie became a murderer. Because he couldn't forgive the person who worked with his family's killers. This person worked with his family killers. Ollie couldn't forgive them. It made him kill somebody. That's bad. But now hold on. Jon Snow couldn't forgive Ollie for killing him. And he ended up killing Ollie. Hashtag it me. Jon Snow, Ollie. Hashtag same. They are the same person. If you hate Ollie. You hate Jon Snow. Ah. ah. The Karstarks never killed any Stark. Yet because they were working with Ramsay Bolton, Jon killed them in the Battle of the Bastards, did he not? He killed Harold Karstark. And yet somehow that's okay. Where Matt, you're like, Ollie killed Jon Snow. But Jon Snow was working with the wildlings who killed his family. No different than Harold Karstark working with Ramsey Bolton. Hashtag same. You don't even have to answer. I've proven it. No, I was going to say, I was going to say, I was going to say this, Bubba. And I had this wonderful, uh, craft, wonderfully crafted answer to that particular question. However, I can't use it now because I just made the exact opposite case in terms of Alistair Thorne. You did. (laughs) So I can't use it, but. This would have been my response had I not made this case for Alistair Thorne. Would have been duty was the difference. Um, execution of traitors to the Night's Watch was a matter of duty. Um, so Jon Snow's murder uh, by Ollie was not a matter of duty. However, I uh, cannot. Hold on, yeah. I can't. I can't. I can't say that now. I, I'm. I'm boxed into a corner. I yield. You're right. Team Ollie, one hundred and ten percent. Finally. Finally. All right, Steph. We need some ladies. The Night's Watch is, is lame because it only has dudes. 
We need you on our Team Ollie side, Steph. What are my choices, Team Ollie or Team Alistair? You know what? We'll allow you to be on both. <laughs> team John or Team everybody else? I'm Team John. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't like Ollie. I don't like Alistair. I get to this point about Ollie and John being the same, but it's John Snow. Come on. We have to be on his side. He's the prince that was Why? Promised. He's the prince he, that was promised. According he, to who? Melisandre, who also <laughs> saw Stannis on the rap reports. On the rap reports of, of, of Winterfell. How often is Melisandre right about anything? Oh, good not a lot. She's bad. <sighs> not a lot. No, I think she's I, I think she's really gonna be right about what's gonna happen to her and Varys in season eight. I agree with you there. Uh, I think that that's the one thing she might have seen in the flames that's absolutely crystal clear. And remember, Melisandre said way back in season two, she goes, "I will, we will meet again. She says that to Arya. They haven't met oh. again yet. So, spoiler alert for season eight. Oh, and when Gendry returns to Winterfell and tells <laughs> the story of what happened to him, Arya will go after Melisandre. <laughs> Melisandre will end up back on the list. She was on the list for a bit. She got off the list. Once Gendry explains his uh, his time with the leeches, you're saying Arya will put Melisandre back on the list. I love it. <laughs> That's what we got for questions. What else What else do we have for questions? Um, I just want to know, you know, we finally saw Howland Reed in our flashback. Will we ever see him again? I want to see him again. Um, you know, whether we see him in a flashback or we see him in the present time, maybe he meets up with his lone remaining child. You know, maybe he pops up to give us some exposition, Bubba. We've been yeah. for that. <laughs> oh, in, in a brothel with Jorah and a girl in a wig. And a bear. <laughs> and a bear with Tormund. Yeah, yeah. So that's, no, that's I like that. questions. I, I, I want to see Howland. I think we all do. And, you know, this was the only time we've ever seen him. We've heard about him, but. Well, Stephanie, your question is, will we ever see Howland Reed again in the present timeline as opposed to the past timeline? And if I had to put if I had to put money on it, I would bet. No, that's not the way I feel. I want to see him. I want to see Mira again. Mira really gets shafted as a character, I think, in some ways. But uh, but will we necessarily see Howland Reed? I'm not sure. I hope we do. I hope we do. But if I had to, if I had to put you know some gold dragons on it, I I'd bet no. You'd say no. That's that's my guess. To me, Howland Reed is the double zero on the roulette wheel. It's highly unlikely to come up, and yet completely likely to come up. Uh, if you're betting on any other number. And uh, so right. I, I won't place any wager on it either. I would love to see Howland Reed again. I just. Uh, don't think it's uh, you you would think six episodes 90 minutes i mean essentially we have a, a close to a 10 episode season coming up uh when you look at total time so is there room for a howland reed appearance yes right, except that <laughs> since since we have brand to do all of the exposition for us now um i i in a in a book sense i would think that it would be much more possible to see howland reed than in a te- television sense. I don't know. It's I'd like to, I'd answer, like to see, but I, th- I think it's realistic. <laughs> That's a good question, though, Steph. Excellent question. Absolutely excellent question. What other questions do we have? What What do you have, Matt? You're always asking us. What is okay? Uh, here's a question. Here's a question for me. 
and I I will say uh <laughs> once again I'm getting into these kind of just crazy questions that people always say Matt it's so obvious just shut up <laughs> uh but when I look at the Tower of Joy and beyond and uh like Bubba quoted earlier the the three-eyed raven another quote from that is the past is already written the ink is dry and that's what through old three-eyed says so if the ink is dry then that means that even things from the future that have affected it are already ink that is dry as well and i wonder if that is further proof I go off on this tangent nearly every podcast <laughs> this episode, but is this further proof? I, I keep hoping, it, you know, the de- definition of an insane person is the person who asks the same question over and over and over and expects a different answer. Um, and this is the insane in me asking two people, is this universe deterministic? Yes, is my answer. I oh, you gave that- me the same answer. Yeah. You say yes as well. I Whoa, we're all in concurrence. Whatever. What? <laughs> I'm not insane. The, the answer can change. I, I fought with two other people uh, recently about this. <laughs> uh, not you, Bubba. I think that the last time I asked you this question, which will be in an episode in the future, talk about timey-wimey. Right. That- this is when we're working back in time through the Weirwood Network to... Uh, you said the same thing that you thought it was a deterministic universe Um, I feel that all almost all literal universes are in in a lot of ways uh, because there has to be some kind of ulterior plan definitely deterministic from a a writer's standpoint but uh, just within the universe itself uh, is always the question that I like to ask and that's where I came up with that one Uh, you won't be here forever Uh, in terms of the future that's something else that the three-eyed universe says, or three-eyed raven says. Um, and I, I, I feel like that that, coupled with the fact that Bran and Danny have seen the same vision of the throne room, granted, it could be like Melisandre looking in the flames, and it has to be interpreted in some way. For right. instance, do you determine that... Um, do you determine that it means that the White Walkers have come and totally destroyed King's Landing? Because the snow is falling, do you determine that the dragons have come and destroyed King's Landing? Do you determine you don't know exactly what happened? Or maybe it's metaphoric. Having an empty throne means that the throne is vacant. Maybe no one after Cersei will ever assume the Iron Throne. Is it simply, is it something that metaphorically simple? Who knows? But because two different people have shared the same vision, I often use that as one of my linchpins for a deterministic universe as well. Ink is already dry. Right. I mean, uh, touch the ink. It's dry. It's fine. Touch it. It's not wet. (laughs) Come on. This is Bubba's nice way of saying, shut the heck up, Matt, and get to a real question. No, Uh, no. What else else do we have? I would love it to be wrong. I'd love the show to keep shocking me. Uh, A bit like Alan Reed, if I had to bet money. It's to... the ink is dry. Yeah. Very good. Very good. What else do we have for questions? My only other question uh, was about Rickon, and we, we kind of discussed that. I kind of said, you know, what was the point of bringing him back for this besides, you know, to show us, I guess, hey, he's still around. Um, but, you know, we already talked about his shaggy dog 
kind of ending probably doesn't really mm-hmm. have a purpose and game that was that was my question but we already we already discussed it what about you Bubba? Very good. <laughs> well my final question miss stephanie was <laughs> evil uncle Tyrion. Oh, oh my go. goodness gracious. This scene of him breaking the ice with Missande and Grey Worm. <laughs> is it worse than Cousin Orson's Beatles smash speech with his brother Jamie? Or is the worst later on in this season when Uncle Tyrion gets into a joke-telling session? It's open night at Marine with Missande and Grey Worm. <laughs> so which is I, the worst? I think the joke-telling session is is the worst one. I think... I think the the lesser of all the evils is about the cousin Orson. <laughs> Matt, what do you got? As much as I would love to see the writers try to embrace Tyrion in the way that I feel like the books uh, have portrayed him in terms of his not being a flawless character. Instead, they choose this route of him being humorless and... Uh, at least in the eyes of a Masande and a Grey Worm. And <laughs> I find that funny. I, I just find it as pure entertainment. I, I, I didn't think anything other than that. So my answer definitively is cocoon, cocoon. Oh my God, kill me now. <laughs> if he's still if he's still telling this stupid story or telling jokes or anything, Melisandre, don't bring me back. Yeah, I I hear you there, man. I actually agree with you, Stephanie. The jokes was were the really the worst. I I I didn't think anything could top cousin Orson's Beetle Smash story. The joke scene coming up, ouch! Not for me. Not for me. If people like it, I I hope people like it. I hope I'm the only one who feels that way. But boy, yeah. I one other question that I have here is is regarding. Uh, the High Sparrow and Tommen when they're talking. And and uh, I think it's even said in the episode, Tommen says something to the effect of, oh, I've heard this before. Uh, but I just love the parallel of a true leader avails himself of the wisest counsel that he can. And no one is wiser than the gods is what uh, the High Sparrow tells Tommen. And likewise, Tywin told Tommen in season four, a wise young king listens to his counselors and heeds their advice until he comes of age. And even the wisest kings continue to listen to them long afterwards. And both are using this same premise really for the same objective. And that is to be able to rule through the name of the king. And, and Tommen, like I said, he even recognizes the similarities in his speech, but he's yet to see its purpose. So, what is the point of having this kind of repetitive kind of thing if Tommen even recognizes it? Is it just to show Tommen's vulnerability? I his believe vulnerability, so. His, his naivete. I think so. All right. The, I do have another question, actually. Why is it that the water that kills everybody else suddenly gives Arya her eyesight back? Magic. Magic. Well, hmm. Okay, so say there's something in the water, some parasite, that attacks some part of you and kills you, and that's how you die. But mm-hmm. what if this parasite is can be attracted to something else? 
So, uh, you know, because Arya had this other thing in her body, which caused her to go blind, the parasite in the water attacks that and eats that. And therefore, uh, rather than eating the stuff that keeps you alive, like it does with most, you know what? I'm I'm drowning here. I'm under the sea too long. I I, I got no idea. Bubba has blinded us with science. I was just going to say that was very scientific, Bubba. <laughs> You're right. Okay, we're all doomed then. If uh, I'm the scientific one, I apologize, listeners. Tidbits. All right, I'll start. From very saying that children are blameless, I never hurt them, to the reveal of Kyburn's little birds, and that they were actually the same little birds that went under Varys as well. Now we know how Varys and now Kyburn get all of their information. Yes. You think about all of those tunnels that Tyrion was going through to get to the, say, the, the Tower of the Hand and what have you. Can't you imagine little kids being able to get in those spaces? Yes. That actually leads me into one of my points, Matt, that Kyburn now being in charge of the little birds who are just little kids is a terrifying prospect. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Bubba, what do you got for us on tidbits? Anything? Okay, yeah, I've got a I've got a great tidbit right here, and that is Sorry, I'm trying to steal one of your tidbits, Matt, but they're so pointless. I can't go, steal go it. Go for it. <laughs> uh, steal one, please. Okay, here we go. You know, the, I here's one of my favorite tidbits, is that there was foreshadowing galore where you mm. had a, a character saying, you think a horde of wildlings can take Winterfell? And uh, if they get Jon Snow leading them, maybe. He knows the place better than we ever will. Um, him knowing the place really didn't help him at all in that battle. And uh, the wildlings really didn't help him either. You know, one of the characters should have said, do you think wildlings and Jon Snow can take the castle? Only if Sansa bails him out. No, uh, It's just foreshadowing that Jon and the wildlings are going to attack Winterfell. That's all. No, good point. Good point. That hadn't been decided yet. So the the villains knew what was going to happen, even if the heroes hadn't made that decision yet. Good point. That was my point of the foreshadowing. Uh, your, uh, pardon me, your point of the foreshadowing. Yeah, it was mine. Stop taking credit. <laughs> uh, how about the whole uh, confused about the hound thing with Arya? I love that because uh, that's a great look into Arya's character. Again, I'm a journey guy. I'm not a destination guy. And so this whole exploration of, did Arya really hate the Hound? Did she not hate the Hound? I loved that exploration during the conversation with her and the Waif. Stephanie, what else you got? Um, One of my tidbits, again, we already talked about awkward Uncle Tyrion with Masande and Grey Worm and how that leads into more awkward Uncle Tyrion with Masande and Grey Worm. It, it it doesn't stop, guys. We just we just keep getting those moments. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Bubba, you want to steal another one of mine? There's few left. Uh, actually, if you can tell, you can probably uh, you can uh, piggyback. No, no, no. You take him. You take it, buddy. All right. Well, I I'll I'll turn to Jamie, who says that the Lord Commander of the King's Bar- Guard does have a position on the Small Council. So, 
Barristan Selmy did not. And I don't remember if it's, if, if it's a, this is a continuity thing or if it's just that Barristan at one point says that he just didn't want any part. And this is, of course, uh, part of the, of the TV show as opposed to the books. Right. I do realize that there's a big difference in the books. Um, but I, I didn't quite understand, uh, where the position of the King's Guard actually is in terms of the small council. You know, when I'm picturing, you know, the, the, the small council from, you know, season one with Littlefinger and then from when Tywin was kind of the leader of the small council, I don't remember there ever being a King's Guard of nope. any kind. Nope. Sitting not, there. not on the show. No. <laughs> no. Right. So Jamie's okay. saying that's just like, oh, okay. Okay, Jamie. <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's a nice nod to the books. However, it doesn't jive with anything else that happened on the TV show. No. Maybe that's that's my one little Matt's tomato of this about this episode. Well, uh, to give this show credit, way back in season three, mm-hmm. when Barristan showed up with the in uh, oh shoot, which city did he show up in? Uh, Astapor. He showed up in Astapor. That's right, and he joined Daenerys's team and they have sacked Astapor and they're marching on the way to Young Kai. Mm-hmm. The show tried to explain some of this where they had a scene between Barristan and Jorah, yeah. Jorah as their horses were getting some water. And the way the show tried to set it up was that, well, you know, King Robert knew that I had fought for Ares. So he decided for me not to be on the small council. They were ah. trying to set up. That's why Barristan didn't know that Jorah was a spy for Robert and Varys back at the beginning of the series. That's true. Jorah was kind of fishing at that point um, to see what Barristan knew. And uh, I I remember that scene now. Thank you for clarifying that. So uh, the show remained true to itself in that way. We don't have to call that a continuity error. (laughs) One odd thing, I guess that was a minor, minor tidbit. One odd thing about the show is you never had a scene, you know, you have scenes with most of, if not all of the Lannisters together, you know, you've had scenes like that, but house Turl growing stronger. The show never had a scene of really the four of them. And by that, I mean, Lady Olena, Mace Tyrell, her son, and the two kids to Mace, Loras and Marjorie. You never saw a scene of all four of them. Mm. And I always thought it was weird that here they are. You had Mace Tyrell and his mother, Lady Olena, on the small council. The show didn't even seat them next to each other. So visually, it could look like, okay, here are the Tyrells really taking a big uh, percentage of the power here in King's Landing. And I always thought that a bit weird that the show didn't do that. I wonder if casual viewers really truly understood Mace's part in all this and how he was related to everybody. Mm, good point. Well, I mean, other than just being the bumbling son, you know, I I don't guess that Mace was portrayed as anything. Yeah, Wait. the bumbling son. Did Mace ever have a scene with Loras? No. Did he ever have a scene with Marjorie? Yeah, kind of, sort of, but not really. Yeah. Well, and I was also going to say, Olena didn't think much of Mace remember uh you know the lannisters at least tywin you know he wanted you know the unity as a family but olena was just kind of like oh mace is an idiot like 
So she kind of had him at a distance, even though they were all in the same family. That's kind of how I reconcile it, because she was just kind of always like, oh, he's a buffoon. I'm just going to pay attention to Marjorie. <laughs> Probably this right call in this scenario, but I still kind of wish the show had just tied them together a bit. If for any one scene, in the considering that Tyrells existed on the show from the first season, and Millie was only one episode with Loris, all the way to the seventh season, and so... Mm. R.I.P. House Tyrell. You grew strong, and then you stopped growing. Yeah. <laughs> sad, sad. Let's move on to three words. Three words. Describing the episode in three words. Three little words. Oh, what I'd give for that wonderful phrase. To hear those three little words. Three words is where you try to describe the episode in three words. I've got three sets this time around, but before I tell you any of my sets or before I let Bubba or Stephanie tell you their sets, I am going to tell you about the music that's playing underneath if you're listening on a podcast app. I pay good money for that and enjoy it. But also look in the show notes, see who's playing that music. Also see who's playing the music at the beginning of an episode, at the end of the episode, underneath Bubba's great voice. All of that stuff is important to me that you know who these people are. It doesn't matter how many records we sell. We cannot take that money with us. But what we can do is lend our name to your brains so that it goes on to the next person. And it goes on to the next person. And it goes on to the next person. And that's how musicians stay immortal. Do you think Mozart is immortal because he sold, you know, a million CDs? No. He's immortal because... People liked his music, and they started saying his name. And then more people came and listened, and they started liking his music too. And then somebody smart decided to say, hey, I'm going to, you know, just like the way that kids steal the set lists these days, now uh, what they're doing is they're going up to the piano and stealing the score and passing it along. And then some other conductor in another town sees it and says, oh, that's great. Let's do it. And that's how Mozart became immortal some 250 years later. We still know Mozart's name. Make sure that the people who are listed in my show notes become Mozarts. Make sure that 200 years later, you know that Don Weber created this music or that John Pizzarelli created this music or that Ramin Javadi created this music. That's what's important to me. You don't have to buy their stuff. Buying their stuff doesn't help them in terms of immortality. Just remember who they are. Okay, soapbox over. Stephanie, do you have three words for this particular episode? I have two sets. One of them has more than three words. <laughs> that doesn't count. My, oh, fine. I'll shorten it to three words. There you um, go. My first one is Tower of Joy because, like, everybody knew how excited I was for this. Um, that was the pivotal part of the episode for me, even though it was a very short part. But this is what's gotten me pumped. Tower of Joy. Nice. Um, and then my second set of three words to set it to three words will be watch has ended. <laughs> mm, very good. My as in I that was, uh, in parentheses that was my and then right. watch has ended. Yes. <laughs> Agreed. Very good. I love them. Love them. Love them. Love them. Bubba, what have you got for me? My three words are now it ends. And that's the <laughs> those are Ned's words right before the fight. And I think it's a good 
thought process for where we're going and where the show kind of took us from here. Yes, from this point forward, the show will occasionally hit on little points from the book, like the storyline coming up in River Run. But this really, really is the end. This is really kind of setting us up towards the big confrontation that's coming. And uh, this is the end. The Tower of Joy reveal is something you only reveal at the end of a story. And so uh, now it ends. Are my three little words. Love it, Bubba. That's excellent. Nice. Yeah, excellent, excellent. I, as I said, three sets. I'm going to work backwards from number three. Swings the sword. And those are the na- famous words of Ned, who said, of course, the he who passes the sentence swings the sword. And John has passed the sentence, and now he has to swing the sword. Not at heads this time, at least, but just at a rope. Uh, a much smaller target, but it's a big sword, so it can definitely hit it. Um, and much bigger collateral in the fact that he takes out all of his assassins in one fell swoop. My second set of three words is, now it ends just like Bubba's. Uh, and I will once again say that kid did a good voice uh, pertaining to Sean Bean. Not so much uh, uh, as, as Bubba pointed out his looks, not so much, but... Boy, he had the voice down. Um, Credit to the kid for that. And my final three words, (laughs) the same way that I started off this particular podcast, bubbling and crying and being all soft and gooey inside and displaying my guts out on the podcast, um, go fail again. Davos's words, um, just they kind of feed directly into my whole mentality these days about getting a second chance. I, for 25 years, I was a very successful uh, musician slash producer slash whatever in music. And um, after I got out of the hospital, I realized I had to give up what I thought was my true calling to serve. Um, instead, I've, I'm going back to school to become... Uh, a radiologic technician, a guy who will be taking pictures of your chest when it hurts or of your arm when you've broken it. And I can't help but feel that this happened for a purpose. And um, so Davos's words really hit home to me. With that, we'll get to Brothel Mix. Mates, the best coupling of the episode. L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very, very extraordinary. E is even more than anyone that you adore can love. And so Brothelmates is the best coupling of the episode. Naturally, we will have to have Bubba go last because he is the king of the Brothelmates. I will start out. It's the best coupling. It doesn't have to be two people. It can be a person and an object or a person and a concept 
or what have you. Uh, my two brothel mates this time around actually are two people, Jon Snow and Dolores Ed. <laughs> because Ed knows Jon so well. Ed, Ed, Jon makes a joke, and uh, he, first he asks Jon if, if Jon is still in there. That's still you in there. Your eyes are still blue or whatever, or brown, or whatever color they were. I don't even remember. Uh, but uh, Jon responds uh, with a funny little quip, and Dolores Ed says, That's funny. Given lack of John's sense of humor, nobody there seems to know John Snow better than Ed at that point. And that's why they're my brothel mates of this particular episode. Stephanie, what do you got for me? Oh, my brothel mates are, surprise, the two sole survivors from the Tower of Joy. Our friends, Ned Stark and Howlin' Reed. Yay! <laughs> they were the only ones who survived that battle. They're the only ones who live to tell the tale, and nobody's telling us the tale. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And, of course, I will now uh, concede the floor completely to the king of brothelmates, Bubba, from the Joffrey of Podcasts. Have you ever been to Nevada? That's right, it's time to light up the candles and get close to the fire. It's time to go to brothel mates, but this time we're not going to be confined to just two. No, sometimes love has to spread. I'm talking about that beautiful chicken ranch known as Castle Black, filled with hot, sweaty men and 100-year-old woman getting busy. Let's oh talk God. about it. I'm saying that when Dorman saw Jon Snow's dick pic, he thought, oh, yeah, he's not a god, but he might be a lover. And let's not get to those hot and sweaty guys. Yes, I'm talking about Alistair Thorne and Ollie. They're both swingers, if you know what I mean. Oh, my. I am telling you. I am telling you. Jon Snow saw those swingers and he took off his cloak slowly, revealing the warm, sexy, sliced up chest underneath. His watch may have ended, but our watch is just getting started. Who doesn't like to watch? So, Castle Black and all those hot, sweaty dudes coming back from the dead, my brothel mates of the week. <laughs> <laughs> that is very reminiscent of like season two when you used to call into the fan call-in show. Very good, Bubba. Love it, my man. Bravo. <laughs> Back with the closing thoughts in a minute. Love can make it. Take my heart and please don't break it. Love was made for me and you. For me and you. All right, folks, I'd like to thank you for sticking around to this podcast. Thank you for sticking through all of my silly emotion stuff. I had to get that off of my chest. It's been, I don't know. It is not silly, Matt. <laughs> well, not it, silly at all. It, it's, it's been just ticking at me for a year now, and uh, I'm so glad to kind of get it off my chest. Thank you for being my therapy session, all you listeners. I really appreciate it. And thanks so much. Uh, to the people who had to endure it first. Uh, my 
my co-hosts here who had wonderful thoughts about this episode, as they always do. First, let me turn to you, Stephanie. You are the siren of A Song of Ice and Fire from the North. We hope to be having you along with us for Season 8 reviews as well. If people want to talk to you about Game of Thrones or A Song of Ice and Fire in general, how can they reach you? Oh, you know I will be here till the bittersweet end. Um, you can find me on Twitter at SM Persephone. That's S-M-P-E-R-S-E phone. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me, Stephanie. And uh, I know that all of our listeners appreciate your time, as I do. But the guy who has uh, used to come on to Podcast Winterfell when I do fan calling shows and blow our mind, him, him and Ken were the two guys uh, who used to run Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. Uh, they they would come on and just blow our minds with great thoughts about these episodes. And then they ran off and did their own kind of little podcast. And then Bubba ran off further and did started doing his own podcast called The Joffrey of Podcasts, which is an absolutely must-listen. You can get it on Spotify, I think. You can get it uh, on Stitcher. You can get it anywhere you listen to podcasts. And uh, he's created this whole empire of great podcasts about great shows called Double P Media. You can find him on Twitter at Double P HQ. Let me just do that plug first. And then Bubba, because we know that you have so few followers and you need more, how can people talk to you about Game of Thrones or A Song of Ice and Fire? Well, Matt, before we get to the most important Twitter handle in the world, I want to say it is <laughs> such a... Such an honor and so much fun to to be talking with Stephanie Persephone, one of the most energetic and wisest and most fun Game of Thrones fans there is. And Matt, I also want to thank you always for having us on today. You you really opened up and you you know you put a lump a lump in all of our throats and made us feel yeah. so much love for you. And I know listeners that if you really want to support Matt on his journey, you'll follow me on Twitter at Fit and Trim. That's F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M at Fit and Trim on Twitter. That's right, folks. Just bypass me and go straight to the source at, F <laughs> at Fit and Trim on Twitter. That's the way to go. Uh, Bubba's going to be back in just a second to tell you how to talk to me, but it doesn't matter. You don't need to listen to any of that. Make note in the show notes who played the music underneath him. But don't pay any attention to what Bubba says because he's given you the definitive, most important Twitter handle in the world. F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Matt's audio blog, Find all contact information, back episodes, and podcast app links at mattsaudioblog.com.